This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 46 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 28th of November. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, first of all, we've got a fascinating interview with a guy called Scott Schober, who runs a company called Berkeley Veritronic Systems out in New Jersey. And he's a cybersecurity expert, and he's going to be talking to us all about cybersecurity. Yeah, and hackers and the criminal elements, and it's quite dramatic in ways, yes. Then we've got an interview with economist Nicholas Gruen. Yeah, and uh, what's Nick talking about? Nick is talking about regulation and innovation. Good, which is a a needy subject in the... In Australia at the moment. Anyway, let's talk to our friend from New Jersey. Is the problem with cybercrime getting worse? Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, I guess to start with, if I focused in on the the U.S. specific, because obviously cybercrime is a global problem, but I tend to, to to weigh in typically on the U.S. perspective with regard to credit card breaches. Uh, a lot of times, reflecting upon that. It's really where the liability falls, and currently it's on the the banks, it's on the credit card issuers. So as consumers, consumers don't worry that much if if your uh, credentials are stolen from a credit card standpoint uh, by a a cyber thief or cyber criminal in another country. You say, well, I got to report it. It's a pain, but it allows you then to get your money back right away. The liability shifts a lot more. Next year, October 2015, at least in the U.S., the credit card issuers are pushing that back to the actual uh, retailers and uh, and merchants. So they're going to have to actually take on that liability. Now the whole game will change there as far as who's who's basically flipping the bill when there is compromise. So it's going to force everybody, at least in the U.S. again, to, to ramp up and improve security measures and get rid of the the ancient technology that you, they're using with mag uh, card strips for sure. And again, that's just on the, on the cybersecurity spot uh, regarding credit card breaches, but maybe more in a general sense to answer your question. Uh, we're connected, all of us, through computers ever more so, our tablets, our smartphones. We rely on them. We do a lot more sophisticated things than we did five or even ten years ago when we think about it, be it banking, stock trading, anything where there's proprietary information or confidential information, that's where cyber uh, uh, hackers are really targeting. They want to be able to get that easily. So it could be easily from our mobile devices that it's certainly a target. And then, of course, the economic side of things. Uh, Again, most of these crimes are happening in Eastern European countries and Russia, uh, different areas like that where a lot of the cyber hacks originate from. And it's hard to get a job there. So if you think about it, if somebody goes to school, they try to get an average job and the the unemployment is so high, it's very tempting to say, wow, I can make a lot more money sitting at home in my pajamas behind a keyboard and and target different areas of the world where they can perform their cyber crime. And there's an entire underground world that's going on where they can link with other hackers and other cyber criminals where they could actually buy different applications to help in the cyber theft that they're promoting. And at the same time, they don't feel like they're they're robbing a bank, pulling out a gun and stealing innocent people's money. 
there's some anonymity there which probably helps them a little bit as well. So they don't see a face. They don't see somebody that actually got robbed. They don't see the victims because most of the time they're doing is collecting these masses of, of credit card or identity theft or different credentials and then in turn going into the underground market and selling volumes of that for, for quick return, be it cash or be it uh, bitcoins, obviously, is very popular there because it's digital currency, which is very hard to then uh, trace the whereabouts or where the origin of it was. So a lot of different reasons that uh, I think cybercrime in general is getting worse. The, the, the honest people and the security groups, I think, unfortunately, are a step behind the cyber criminals. They're always looking for the next um, vulnerability that they could clearly exploit. So they're always searching and they're communicating amongst one another in this, this underground world. And that really helps them to be very effective in, 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 in these different attacks that we're seeing and reading about day in and day out. Scott, I noticed uh, eBay is going to hive off uh, PayPal and you've also got Apple Pay coming up. Are these Absolutely. sort of uh, closed environments uh, going to make it more secure or is it still a danger? I feel there's always a danger there. However, Apple Pay in particular has really, uh, it's, it's probably going to revolutionize the way mobile payments are going forward. Others have tried it, had some level of success, but not, not a, uh, a global scale success by any means. Apple, I think, is going to have the best chance of, of a, a high success here because, again, they're, they're using something where they're tokenizing the information and keeping it encrypted early on. So they, that, that they don't get the risk of having it hacked and somebody stealing, again, that confidential information, which is a, a cyber thief is looking for the credit card information, obviously, there if it's a mobile payment environment. And, and it's an easy, easy attack often when wireless is there. They could sit outside a cyber cafe, a Starbucks, a coffee shop, whatever, and be able to try to hack in there as mobile payers come in to buy their cup of coffee. With Apple Pay, it's not that easy because they thought well ahead about all the different security concerns and the vulnerabilities up front. Doesn't mean that it's not hackable because I think everything's got weaknesses, but it's very difficult to do. And cyber hackers typically are lazy. They're going to go for the easy targets first. So they're going to find other mobile payments that have more vulnerabilities to, to exploit. So how, how does that translate into money? I mean, how much is disappears with cybercrime. Do we have any figures on that? That's, it's tough. That's probably one of the toughest things for anybody to steal uh, or, or to, put, to put a number to what they steal. Typical, w when you look at a cyber criminal, an organization, because it's really organized crime, it's groups of people doing this, what they do is they're stealing millions of records and they're hoping to monetize uh, thousands of these records to actually you know, get a payback here. So it's really a numbers game. Even though they're stealing these mass volumes of credit card information, identity theft, and all this other stuff, how much do they actually get away with is not that much as one would think. But when you look at how many different cyber criminal organizations are, when you add that all together, now that number is probably in the upwards of the billions of dollars a year. The effects of it is a little different. What are the costs when you have a breach? on your corporation. In the U.S., the typical breach, it's interesting, it ranges anywhere from about $50,000 to about $450,000 
to deal with the damage. So sometimes the after effects are even more costly, and that could again be in uh, the effects of uh, a company's reputation, perhaps stolen IP and losing the competitive advantage. Maybe it's compromised uh, credit card or security card sold for identity thefts. Nobody's had a really good metrics to, to put the hard and fast numbers down. They're very widespread guesses of how much the actual losses or how much theft is actually occurring. So it's all over the map from all the stuff and research that I've done. Well, one could argue that Target is still getting over what happened to them. Oh, sure. Yeah, very good point there. And in that case, it's interesting because if you follow the whole timeline of what happened to Target, they're still suffering all the effects, not just all the, the natural uh, things that the fallout is, is the lawsuits, but but um, the reputation, to be, rebuild the reputation of a company takes years often. So in, in the short period of, of less than a year, for them to rebuild the reputation is not a reasonable thing to expect. It, it's going to take several years to win back consumer confidence. The lawsuits will be there. The stock's taken a hit. Uh, their forecasts and their earnings, they've had to adjust multiple times. So the overall effect is pretty high. When, when you're going to shop, you, you may think to yourself, well, am I better off to go to Walmart instead of Target? Maybe the perception by consumers is they're safer going to one place versus the other. It's probably the opposite. Usually after someone's hacked, they spend a lot of money and their guard is up and they're watching their servers and they're watching their point-of-sale terminals. So it's actually probably safer after a big breach like this, ironically. But, but it's perception. A lot of this is very very much on, on the, the human factor and how people feel the perception of security. They're more likely to take money out of their wallet and spend hard cash than whip out their credit card for fear that, again, their magstripe might be compromised. Down here in Australia, we, we have now chips in our credit cards and debit cards. And sure. I wonder, and yet the impression I have that the banks are wearing the cost rather than investing in new back-end systems and in putting uh, better chips into cards. You're absolutely right. It, it, it all comes down to the mighty dollar, unfortunately. And, and I hear it again and again, how much money is going to be spent toward the, the point-of-sale terminals, investing in, in, in better chip and pin technology in the cards, which already, I mean, a number of years ago, that technology was proven to be breached. So it's got its own problems, but it's much safer than the mag strip cards that are used here in the U.S. The U.S. is so far behind all the other countries on a global scale, I find it embarrassing. Um, but even so, when the U.S. migrates over by next year, you're going to see most of the major retailers, merchants using chip and pin technology. In fact, I was contacted last week, the importance of upgrading to chip and pin technology, how much safer it is, so on and so forth. It's a little bit of a sales pitch because it's it's not true end-to-end -end encryption that's being used on um, that technology. So one still has to be aware of, of where the, the weaknesses are there. But it, it is a much better step than using the magnetic stripe data, for sure, on the back of a credit card here in the U.S. So what else can organizations do to stop their information getting into uh, hackers' hands? Oof. There's a lot of things that they have to do. Uh, I guess number one is if you look at the, the backbone of everything, all these things everybody has to access is it's all password driven. 
and, and in the case of all these things, to have access, say, say you're a third party and you have to have access to a server that ties into a retailer, you have to have a password. So number one, do you have a strong password in place? This goes down to the consumer level, up into the corporations. And, and that's the number one area. I talk to people every single day. They have weak passwords. You should not have a password that you use for logging onto your social media account, your, your Facebook or whatever, that you also use for your banking information. Because if and when your Facebook credentials are compromised, the first thing that a good cyber thief does is they will go and hit all the banking sites. They will hit where you trade your stock possibly or anywhere else that that password might be used. So having a strong password, what do we mean by that? And it's said again and again, 12 to 15 characters long, mix of numbers, symbols, uppercase and lowercase, and having some different characters in there. That makes a world of difference. Again, if you're doing banking, 401k stock type of transactions, having that real strong password, but also on your social media accounts and everywhere else. So different password for each account. Don't reuse anything. Big mistake. And on top of that, to rotate your passwords, change them. About every three months is recommended. Hard to do, hard to remember those passwords. Have a good black book where you write that down and you keep it secure away from everyone else is your best chance. Putting it on an app or out on the Internet, up in the cloud, all those things have their own vulnerabilities there to put your passwords out. So I personally would not recommend that. What about things like 1Password where you... It generates these complicated passwords and then stores them. Do you think there's a vulnerability in that? I personally do. I, I've played around with them, tried with, tried them. They're effective. They're useful. E even programs to rate how effective your password is, how long would it take for it to be hacked. The only problem with all those, in my opinion, is you got to put that information in there, into the app or out on the website. There is a... Um, there is a I guess a users group out there in the underground that has amassed and collected all these different passwords that they've stolen from different apps and different postings and they post them there for the cyber hackers. Some of them are free and some you have to pay for. So if you want to take a, a person and maybe you've got some of their identity that you've stolen but you're missing the key ingredient, the password, you can buy this database and push it in there and try to find it. So they're buying bits and pieces almost like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a cookie crumb trail to find how to compromise your identity or, or your credit card. So I, I'm not real quick to put a password out there on some remote site, be it on the cloud somewhere, a server where I don't know its whereabouts or its security, or or just even on an app where if somebody did hack it, now they don't just have one password, they have all my passwords. So got to be really careful there. Scott, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Sure, no problem. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, well, there's a lot of crime around, Leon, and it gets clever every minute. And now Nick Gruen on uh, regulation. Nicholas Gruen, uh, you have a view about what's happening with regulation. Tell us about it. Uh, well, I think that we're on a, we've got the wrong kind of uh, metaphors in our mind. We're drawing the wrong analogies. So, so we have this idea that uh, and we always have, uh, this goes back to the, you know, the glory days of reform, the 1980s, and we came up with this idea of minimum effective regulation. And what that focuses on is the idea of over-regulation. We don't want to be over-regulated. And, of course, 
there's a trivial truth to that, and we're all pretty annoyed when we're over-regulated, and I could tell you some horror stories. So I'm not um, speaking against the idea that we try and clean up over-regulation. But like anything else, regulation has costs and benefits, and we are at a kind of equilibrium point, if you like, a political equilibrium point. We want we, we use regulation extensively to deliver important public goods, environmental amenity, workplace safety, uh, drug safety, you name it. And simply saying we don't want to over-regulate these things doesn't say anything about the relative costs and benefits of the regulation. So what we always do is we talk about lowering the costs of regulation. And, And yet every time a government goes out searching for easy wins to remove over-regulation, they come up short. I'll just actually read you something now quite old, uh, but it really gets to the heart of it from the British Chambers of Commerce. It was written about four or five years ago. Both Conservative and Labor administrations approach deregulation with apparent enthusiasm, learn little or nothing from previous efforts, and have little, if anything, to show from each initiative. This is now the state of affairs in Australia and has been since the policy of minimum effective regulation was announced by the Hawke government in 1986. And now we're going through a new deregulation cycle. Lindsay Tanner announced deregulation with great fanfare at the beginning of the Rudd government, and now we've got the coalition announcing it and doing slightly better, I think, than the ALP, but really not making much progress because I think it's it's got the wrong... It's got the wrong metaphor in its head. Every government tries to get rid of red tape. We've always seen it. And they always say they want to get rid of red tape. Yeah. But the red tape remains in place and it and actually increases. That's right. That's right. Uh, the Deloitte have just put out a paper which is, in many ways, has got the same kind of negative focus, which is that regulation is bad. But, it, but what's interesting about it is that it, it uh, actually tries in a pretty crude way to measure the cost of regulation and finds that the costs of the regulation that firms place upon themselves is twice as large as the cost of the regulation that governments place on them. So these are, you know, regulations about, you know, procedures. One of the things that annoys me recently is that our business is constantly being asked to fill out forms for accounts departments of clients that we haven't done any work for for ye- you know years, but they want us to fill out a form and they won't pay you any money until you've filled out that form. For and so everyone runs around filling out forms. That's an example of well, what looks to me like vexatious regulation, but of course the business has got its own reasons for doing that. And so I'm not really that well-placed to work out what the right thing to do is because presumably the businesses, the, the people in the business are actually trying to achieve something and trying to bring about some efficiencies. So then the problem becomes, well, some inefficiencies are being imposed on me or some costs are being imposed on me. There are some efficiencies for the business. How do we actually work out a system that is the best, lowers total costs for both of us. Uh, That's a tricky question. It sort of has to be solved in micro detail. But of course, if we're having a big high level discussion about regulation, those sorts of examples are never really considered. In many ways, I think the key to trying to regulate better 
the key is not to regulate less, but to regulate better. And we have some clues about how to do that, because if you look at the way the revolution that Toyota brought about uh, in car making didn't put its effort on getting people to work harder and surveilling its workforce to make sure it wasn't shirking and having more inspectors on the line and more inspectors on giving suppliers a, an even harder deal. They worked upon the idea that they were running an extremely complex system and if they could get everyone in the system at the coalface really working away at trying to just make little improvements that uh, really large, that could amount to really large improvements. And I think that's a better metaphor for how we might be able to make regulation work better than this idea that we've got to get rid of overregulation. That's a trivial observation, but it doesn't get to the heart of what we might be able to do to make things better. So the key would be to actually look at the process and how to improve it. Indeed, and also to pay a little bit of attention to incentives. And by incentives, I don't really mean paying people bonuses or anything like that. I mean cultural incentives. Uh, One of the things that Toyota did was that it got rid of suggestion boxes at the back of the factory. It got rid of bonuses. It got rid of piece rates. And it organised people into teams. And it tried to harness their intrinsic motivation. It tried to flatten management structures. Uh, One of the things that was really important with the Japanese and in some ways remains important and remains a strength of Japanese management is that they minimise the the sense that managers and workers on the line uh, have different interests. So the you know, the relationship between, just as a simple example, the relationship between CEO pay and the pay of people on the line is, uh, is, is, is extremely modest compared with Western standards. Uh, so, so there are, and that's relevant because you're trying to engage the people on the line. You're trying to say, we're all in this together. So the Toyota production system was a sort of social revolution inside, inside organizations. It's not a few tricks. It's not just in time, it's not the Kanban, it's not the being able to stop the line at any point. It's a whole a whole suite of measures and management attitudes and culture which are designed to involve people down to the coalface, down to the assembly line, in thinking of themselves as knowledge workers, in thinking of themselves as people who are empowered and encouraged to do a good job every day rather than to look for ways to slack off and to do a better job tomorrow than they've done today because today they thought of some way to slightly improve or improve in a large way the way they're doing their work. So what do companies have to do? Well, <laughs> it's very, it's pretty interesting. I think a lot of manufacturing companies actually understand this. Uh, they're in very competitive marketplace. This is a now an old story. The, 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 the achievement that Toyota, the extraordinary achievement that Toyota had arrived at by the mid-80s and which most of the Japanese car manufacturers had copied is now bred through lots of manufacturing companies and companies that are in very competitive industries, uh, I think it's much less common in service industries. It's much less common in banks and, and things like that. And uh, to do it, you you sort of have to try. Well, one way of thinking about it 
uh, is to try to build things from the point of view of the people at the bottom of the system, you, to, to, to realise that everyone runs around saying, you know, our people are our greatest asset and all that sort of stuff, but actually having systems which empower people at the bottom, well, we don't have them. And that um, that ability of a Toyota worker to stop the line if something hasn't been done right is a, is a sort of symbol. It's not You can't take that as an idea and stick it in a Western factory. People tried that. <laughs> it was a disaster. Uh, it's a, it shows you how things have been built from the ground up rather than from the top down. So, so in, a, in a sense, what I'm saying is there isn't a top-down recipe for this. There are ideas, but you kind of have to you have to uh, sort of walk the walk the talk. You 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 really have to uh, build things up from the bottom up. That's that's what Toyota did, and uh, that's what quite a lot of firms have done, and quite a lot of firms haven't done. Big banks haven't done it. I can tell you, having. Uh, a mortgage broking company, the number of times we have to rewrite documents and all the rest of it would horrify any worker or engineer in Toyota. So that is a big challenge for service companies. Yeah, I think it is. I think it definitely is. Nicholas Groom, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, we've got to do something about it uh, because it's holding up innovation. Indeed, well, there's no real uh, incentive for anybody to innovate. You know, we're just building Australians with American accents. That's right, and uh, that's pretty sad right now. Absolutely. And uh, now the news. Well, Gary, to start with, German business sentiment unexpectedly increased in November, and that suggests Europe's biggest economy is slowly finding its footing after struggling to expand in recent months. Uh, the IFO Institute said its monthly business confidence survey rose to 104.7, that's up from 103.2 in October, and that's broken a string of six straight monthly declines. And that actually coincides with new data showing household government spending enabled Germany, which is Europe's biggest economy, to avoid a recession in the third quarter. And that's good news, Gary. You know, the world would be in a lot of trouble if Germany went into recession. Great figures get coming out of the US. Uh, their economy grew at a robust 3.9%. That's the strongest six-month stretch for the US economy in a decade as business investment and consumer spending has picked up there. Yep, yeah, the Yanks look as though they're on their way back to the top of the heap. But the problem is, notwithstanding what's happening in Germany, uh, the OECD is warning us that the weak Eurozone economy is posing a key threat to global growth. And it's urging more flexibility and fiscal rules for struggling EU members like France and Italy to prevent another recession. They're say, forcing the two major Euro European economies to meet the EU's tough deficit criteria would likely depress activity further and even risk tipping the euro area into another recession. Yeah, it's difficult. Italy particularly, you know, they, you don't know how far to push it without causing a problem. Now, Gary, the government, the Australian government, is going to net $5.9 billion from its hugely successful float of Medibank Private. That's $1 billion more than the coalition had first predicted. Yeah, and some of the fund managers are complaining it puts it too high, aren't they? Well, the, the institutions are coughing up $2.15 a share for the health insurers. Retail investors, the mums and dads who received the lion's share of the offer, pay only the promised top retail price of 2 bucks a share, which is a discount of 7% for retail shareholders. 
but what's interestingly enough is the Abbott government won't be siphoning off any of the proceeds from Medibank Private to pay down debt. Instead, all the money is going into the government's so-called asset recycling fund, which encourages states to sell assets and use the money to build new infrastructure like roads rather than pay down debt. And so Medibank Private shares rallied 7% in their opening day. And that's jumped above the off retail offer price of $2. And that, that was also at the time when the stock market actually declined 0.5%. The shares come back a bit now. I think it was um, last quote was about $2.08. That's right. But it's still, it's still above the $2 offer price. Still above the 2 bucks, and everybody's breathing easier. That's right. That's right. Now, the OECD is warning Treasurer Joe Hockey not to be too heavy-handed in cutting the budget. And in its last latest economic outlook... The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development is backing the government's aim of returning the budget surplus by the early 2020s, but it seems given the economic uncertainties, it should avoid heavy front loading in its report. And the OECD expects that Australian economic growth will dip to 2.5% in 2015. That's down from an expected 3.1% this year. And that's weighed down by declining business investment, which means next year is going to be very, very tough. And uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office has said that the Abbott government's budget deficit could blow up by billions of dollars more than expected. And it's found that labour productivity is more likely to decline than improve over the coming years, and that's going to hurt revenues. The terms of trade, which is the price we receive for our exports compared to the price we pay for imports, are likely to have a bigger negative impact on the budget than forecast. Australian government revenues could fall by $32.4 billion by 2024-25, labour productivity grows by less than average annual rate of 1.3% over the next 10 years. Personal income tax would account for $20.6 billion. I also found that government revenues could fall by $10 billion by 2024-25 if world mining commodity prices fall by 35%. They've already fallen, man. Well, that's Well, you know, the uh, iron ore price has now sunk by 50%, Gary, because the last price... It sunk to a new five-year low of six, last I saw it was sixty-eight dollars sixty. Yep, but they're exactly right, and that's the lowest it's been in five years. Five years, yeah. It's really, really bad. Well, and of course, this affects government revenue. The taxes are lower then, and you begin to wonder. I mean, the uh, BHP and Rio were digging it out of the ground as fast as they could, and of course, the price, the bottom fell out of the price. That's still okay for their shareholders, but. For the rest, it's not too good. No, it's, it's not good. And uh, it's also going to affect all our terms of trade. And it's also going to affect the smaller mining companies. Yeah, well, a lot of them will go to the wall. That's right. Now, uh, at the same time, construction work done, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, actually fell more than expected in the September quarter. Data from the ABS showed total construction work for the quarter slipped 2.2% to $51.1 billion. Economic forecaster BIS Shrapnel expects a fall in Australian mining investment to be the biggest on record. Uh, BIS Shrapnel has released the findings of its mining in Australia 2014-2029 reports, and it points to a 40% collapse in investment in the sector over the next four years. So what are we going to replace mines with? Well, exactly, which is why BHP this week revealed further deep cuts of capital spending and a shake-up of its executive ranks in the wake of its demerger plans, and that includes several changes to its management committee. It's cutting capital spending by $1 billion to $13 billion in 2016, and that's going to create more cash for shareholder returns. Yeah, that's true, but they, they are going to do something about the Olympic Dam, aren't they? They are talking about that, and that's good. And the Olympic Dam will be enormous. Once Huge. Copper, gold, and uranium. 
And, you know, once the Olympic Dam is up, it's going to really boost BHP's revenues. Now, uh, interestingly enough, with the 10 network, a bid from Discovery Communications and joint venture partner Foxtel is seen likely to take on a cash and share structure for the 10 network as suitors look over to win 10 over 10's largest shareholder, Bruce Gordon. But there are a number of uncertainties. So 10 Advisor City is now seeking bids by December the 2nd which is next Tuesday. And Time Warner's dropped out of the running, leaving Saban Capital Group and a potential joint offer from Anchorage Capital and Providence Equity Partners as the only competition to Discovery and Foxtel. Mm, I would have thought, well, there's a problem with Foxtel a bit, isn't there, on, in terms of uh, the uh, C. Well, that's going to be an issue. Small business, meanwhile, according to the Australian Chamber of Commerce, is struggling to keep their heads above water, weighed down by weak sales and profits. According to their latest business survey, small business conditions rose to 46.8 points in September. That's up from 46.1, but it's still below the 50-point mark that separates contraction from expansion, and sales and selling prices have been sub-50 since March 2009, and profits remain deeply in deeply contractionary territory at 39.1 points. Yeah, Who'd want a small business now? No, and but at the same time, consumer confidence is slowly improving, which should result in a pickup in spending going into the Christmas period. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 1.2% last week, partly reversing the 1.6% fall the previous week, which is why retailers are rubbing their hands with glee, because according to Ibis World, uh, Australians are expected to blow more than $30 billion this festive season. Our last party before the crunch. Well, uh, Apple products and gaming consoles are going to top the Christmas wish lists, according to Ibis World, and that'll give gaming, that'll give electronics retailers a fifty-six percent boost in December. It's the second boost that uh, the Apple iPhone six, I think, may have got the figures right last month. That's right, and overall retail sales are expected to spike thirty-five percent next month, up for, up five point five percent from last year, led by department store sales, which are forecast to bounce ninety-four percent. Gary, you remember a few years ago we interviewed a guy called Wayne Homchick, yes. who set up Pieface, yes, and he had big. Ex- he was a former Citigroup banker from That's Wall right. Street. And he was going to make a mozza. He was absolutely going to make a mozza, and he was going to expand all over the world. He told us, yep, and that was on our Talking Business podcast years ago. Yeah, well, the company has now <laughs> in big, big trouble, and a string of high-profile investors, including U.S. casino mogul Steve Wynn and local retail boss Brett Blunden, have. Brett Blundy have pie on their faces after the collapse of the voluntary administration of Pieface. And Pieface was one of Australia's fast fast food chains to expand overseas. It was the first. And it's come to an aggressive growth plan that wanted to take Australia's pies to the world. Now, it has 78 stores in Australia and was boasting plans only last year to roll out 180 stores globally by next year, have a share market float, valuing the business at $150 million. Now, um, Wayne Homchek has handed the business over to accounting and advisory firm Jish Sutherland, which now has a job of trying to rescue the more profitable parts of the food empire and refinance a balance sheet. And they raised nearly $50 million from investors since 2010, including Mr. Blundy, who is the founder of retailer Brazen, who invested $2.6 million into the business four years ago via his BB Capital Venture, and US billionaire Wynn, who reportedly sunk $15 million into its US franchise arm for a 43% stake. Now, Homchek, uh, as I said, he was a Citigroup banker. Uh, he worked on Wall Street, and he and his fashion designer, Betty Fong, founded Pieface in 2003. 
after he left his job following the dot-com crash. And they still own about 40% of the business. And he always had big plans, Gary. I mean, I remember he was talking about expansion plans for locations in the Gulf, including the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain. As well as going to the UK. And the Philippines. So the question is, um, uh, do they eat pies in those countries? Not noticeable. No, my reading of it is this was he was going to make his money by franchising. Yeah, so other people could take the loss. That's right. Yeah, if people are interested in hearing him, the uh, podcast we did with him is still in the archive. It's still in the archive, so you can look it up. And in the meantime, Gary, that's it for this week. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with Nick Austin from Divi. Uh, Divi is a website that enables people and businesses to rent out car spaces, which makes better use of assets in our cities and urban areas. And it's based on the concept of collaborative consumption, made famous in businesses like Uber and Airbnb. So anyway, that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook.